the book of Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis again, Genesis chapter number 1. We've been looking at uh, the concept of, of a Christian worldview. What does it mean to have a Christian worldview? What is a Christian worldview? And we tried to see the, the importance of living all of life uh, with the mindset and the outlook of, of Scripture. So as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, the Word of God doesn't just shape what we do when we come here for an hour on Sunday morning, but it shapes all of reality for us. And it shapes uh, all that we do, whether it's work or school or family life. Everything that we do is shaped by the, the Word of God, or at least it should be. And we saw that in Romans chapter 12, where, where we're called to be transformed. Our actions, the way that we live, are called to be transformed. And the, the, the means of that happening is by renewing or reshaping our mind, re, reprogramming, if you want to think of it like a, a computer and We've seen that this is really one of the, the great weaknesses of the church in our day and in our time. People profess faith in Jesus Christ. We profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. And yet, following Christ and our faith does not, does not determine or shape the way that we live in the world. Uh, and that is a great weakness and something that needs to be remedied. And so that's the goal of this series is to come together to look at Scripture to look at the truth of the Word of God and to see how that shapes some important issues. Last week, one of the issues that we focused on was how the fact that the Bible teaches that we are made in the image of God, how that then shapes the way that we think about poverty. How that shapes the way that we understand that everyone, because they're made in the image of God, is made valuable and that we ought to care for and love our, our neighbors and those who are in need. This morning, what we want to do is take that same idea of the image of God and in this passage in Genesis 1.26, uh, see how that shapes the way that we think about sexuality, marriage and, and sexuality. So look at, with me, Genesis chapter 1, let's read this passage once more. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. You know, the, the, the truest test of a person's genuineness and their loyalty to Christ uh, is really at the place where that's called into, the, into question uh, most. It, it's at the point where, where our culture is going away from the Lord that is really the genuine and the true test of whether we're going to be faithful to the Lord. You see, we can claim to be followers of Christ and follow Him in, in 90% of the ways that we're called to follow Him. But if our culture says, no, we should go this way and disobey the Lord, and we fail at that point then at that point, we have failed to follow Christ. We have failed to be, to be faithful. And for our generation, maybe some of you who are older, uh, this has not been an issue for you. There's no, been no question uh, about this. But, but for some of us uh, in the younger generation, this question of sexuality uh, is the issue of our day and time. It is the single issue that will prove whether we're faithful in in whether we're faithful to Christ or not. You can, you can be faithful in so many other ways. But if you fail at this point, you're, you're proving yourself not to follow Christ. And so we want to think about this issue this morning. Now, this is a difficult issue in our day. There are a couple things that make the issue of sexuality uh, such a, a big and such a difficult issue for, for so many of us. And, and it is a hard issue. Uh, the, the first is just the cultural pressure. There is a certain way of thinking about sexuality right now that is in vogue in our culture, and it's everywhere. It, it is in TV, it is in movies, and, and for those of us that are saying, wait a minute, God has a design and it's something a little bit different than that, and we believe that this is, this is wrong, we're made out to look like buffoons. And even worse, we're made to look like haters, like, like racists, and, 
And we as Christians know that we're called to love all people and we want to be loving. So so that strikes at the heart of who we are as Christ followers, because we say, no, we're, we're not hateful. We don't hate. We we love. And yet we're called to be faithful to Scripture. There is a great cultural pressure. And let me tell you, it's only going to get more difficult from here. It's one thing to resist a culture, to resist and be different than what you see on movies and TV. It's a whole nother level of commitment that is required when laws begin to be passed that say that you have to think this way. You have to be willing to go along with the way that the world is going or you're going to face severe testing and persecution. But listen, what does the Bible tell us? What did we see? And that's part of the reason that we went through the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter says to us, don't be surprised when you go through fiery trials. This is par for the course. Jesus said, if you follow me, people are going to hate you. People will persecute you. We are beginning to see this and we will see it all the more as our culture turns further and further away from the Lord. And this area of sexuality is going to be the beachhead on which the attacks come against the Bible and against those who are faithful. There's also a relational pressure for many of us. Many of us have uh, longtime friends, co-workers, sons and daughters, cousins, all kinds of relatives, people that we love dearly and we care for them dearly. And the temptation for us is to allow our love for them to then cloud our moral judgment and to cloud the way that we look at Scripture Listen, we need to be clear that loving a person does not mean a total affirmation of all that they do. Loving a person does not mean a total affirmation of all that they do. I think for most of us, if we, if we seek to be faithful to the Lord, there's a way in which we can love those that we come into contact with that, that are not walking according to God's design of sexuality. We can love them and we can even maintain a good relationship with those people all the while not yielding to the cultural pressure to affirm sinful behavior. I think it's possible and I've, I think we see instances of that. But for some, for some people, however... Anything short of a total affirmation of their lifestyle will be viewed as hateful. And we've got to determine right now whether or not we, are, we, are, we care more about their affirmation and that relationship than we do following Christ. Jared read that passage this morning about denying ourselves. And, and I'm reminded also of Matthew chapter 10. Verse 34 that says this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Then he says this, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever uh, loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The call that we are called to is faithfulness to Jesus Christ. No matter matter what the ramifications are for us in the relationships that we have. We cannot put our sons, our daughters, our mothers and fathers, our brothers and sisters. We cannot put our, our love for them above our love For Jesus Christ, Jesus says, if you do that, you're not worthy of me. So so despite the cultural pressure, despite the 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 relational pressure that we feel in this culture right now, we're called to be faithful to Jesus Christ. If despite our best efforts to be loving and caring, we are still rejected because of our commitment to Christ, then we must love Christ enough to bear that rejection. Remember that Christ bore rejection for you to save you. He was rejected for you. And your following Him may mean that you will be rejected by people that perhaps you care very deeply about. But you've got to make that decision now. That's, That's what's called for. That's what Christ demands. If you put anything or anyone above Christ, uh, he, he is saying that is not what it means to follow Him. Now, as we come to this issue, 
I'm reminded of what Paul said in Ephesians 4.11 about building up the church. And he says that Christ gave to the church preachers and teachers, uh, apostles and teachers and, and shepherds. And he said the purpose for Christ giving these teachers was so that the church could be built up, so that the church could grow in maturity. That's what we're seeking to do here is grow in maturity in this difficult area. But Paul said that the way that that would be accomplished is through speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. You see those two components there? That's what I'm seeking to do this morning. I want to speak the truth, but I want to do it in love. Too often the church has been guilty of just hammering on the truth in a very ugly way. And sometimes it's like, uh, like me, when you get into an argument with your spouse, you can be right and wrong at the same time. And sometimes the church has been right but wrong in the way that we talk about this issue of, of sexuality. But as we come to it, we seek to do it in a loving manner. We seek to do it with grace, uh, but we must do it with truth as well. And we must speak to this issue. The question that we want to think about this morning is what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Does the Bible affirm it? Is the Bible neutral or is the Bible clear uh, that it is a sin? You know, as we come to this as well, I just want to go back to this whole issue of a worldview. And we see this put into practice. The, the question is not what do you feel or what have you been brought up to think and believe? The question for us as Christians, Bible believing Christians is what does the word of God say? That settles it. That is the issue uh, for us as we as we come now. Now we can seek to work through the cultural implications of what the Bible says and seek to apply those in, in various ways. But at the end of the day, if you are a Christian, if you believe the Bible to be the word of God, God's revelation, you must you must submit and yield to the word of God. Psalm one eight one nineteen eighty nine forever. O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. It is settled. There, there's no question. If God's word is clear, then we must be clear. What we see when we come to the word of God on the issue of homosexuality is that the Bible does not say a lot. The Bible is not a book written primarily about sexuality. It doesn't say a lot about sexuality and in particular homosexuality. But when it does speak, it speaks clearly and it speaks decisively on the matter. So let's look, first of all, at Matthew chapter 19. We're going to look at just a few passages. There are more than these, but I want to look at a few passages that speak to this matter and then, uh, and then move from there. As we move forward, we'll deal with some objections and kind of talk through the issue in our day. But first, we just want to establish what does the Word of God say. So be open to that. Have an open mind to say what does the Bible say about this issue. Matthew chapter 9 or Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him. They came to Jesus. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? The passage that we just read in Genesis. He said, look, don't you remember? You Pharisees, you, you know scripture. He made them male and female. And said, therefore, therefore, because God made them male and female, because of that order, that creation design that's, that's spoken of in, in Genesis 1.26, because of that, a man, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And that word wife in, in Greek, there's only one word. The word can mean wife or woman. So literally we could say a man shall leave his father and mother and hold to his woman or his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Well, this, this passage has huge implications for us. The first of all, uh, the first thing that we see is Jesus' affirmation of the Old Testament. So many people, when we come to the issue of homosexuality and sexuality in general, uh, if you quote anything from the Old Testament, uh, people will raise their hands and they'll say, yes, but that's the Old Testament. That's, that's the law and, and that's no good anymore. But Jesus here is clearly affirming his view that the Old Testament is authoritative. It's the word of God. Now, it is true, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, that there are some ways in which we're not under the Old Testament law in certain ways, but that does not mean that the Old Testament has no meaning and no authority for the way that we live our lives. 
In fact, Jesus said this, and this is from the New Living Translation, but Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. I just like it because of its clarity here. He says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment from the Old Testament, the least commandment, and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But if anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus affirms the Old Testament. As we come to this issue, we don't just disregard the Old Testament. But the second thing that Jesus does in this passage is to set out a positive view of what marriage and sexuality is supposed to be, uh, is supposed to look like. You see, if if I am uh, trying to tell you what car I drive outside, I could give you all these details and say, well, it's not this one. It doesn't look like that. And it's not this color, and it's, a, it's, it's not a car. I could do all those things, or I could take the positive step of trying to describe to you what my car looks like, rather than telling you what it doesn't look like. And that's what we have when we come to Jesus. Jesus never specifically addressed the issue of homosexuality. But what He did for us here is that He set out a positive view of what marriage is supposed to be. And what He says marriage is supposed to be is the, is the joining together, the one flesh union of one man and one woman for a lifetime. You see, as one person said, the foundation of our view of sexuality is not what Paul says about homosexuality, although that's important. But it is what Jesus says about marriage. Jesus affirms the Old Testament biblical view of marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. What what is Jesus' argument here? Here they come to him and they're they're questioning about the the issue of divorce. That was the question on their mind. And they're saying, is it it lawful? Is it good? Is it okay uh, for for someone to be divorced? And that was a debate that they had, much like like we have today. Uh, And Jesus says, well, let me answer that question for you. Go back to the Old Testament. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and remember what God said about marriage. God said that he created them, male and female, and therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And what God has joined together in this one flesh union, don't let anyone separate that. God's joined them together. And so Jesus sets out a a, a clear view. His his reasoning is remarkably clear, namely that God's original creation design for marriage is the union of a man and a woman for life. And therefore, any deviation from Genesis 1.26 and from Genesis 2, any deviation from that is sin. This has to do with, with divorce, but it also has to do with the issue of gender and, and, and homosexuality. You notice that the gender is stressed here. In verse 4 uh, of Matthew, uh, in this passage, we, we see that he says, Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? And then he says, Therefore, because God made them male and female, that means a man should leave his, his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Gender, then, is not, a, is not accidental. Gender is not just a, 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 a detail that can be taken or left when it comes to marriage and sexuality. Gender is what makes marriage what marriage is. It is an essential part of marriage. And, and that's what he says. Therefore, because God designed the male and female, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And notice what he says. And the two shall become one flesh. As we will see, the Bible clearly prohibits. We're going to look at this. The Bible clearly prohibits homosexuality. But the reason for this prohibition is not just because God's saying, I don't like this or I don't like that. It's because God has a design. And He doesn't want any deviations from that design. He's made marriage. He made sexuality. He said, this is what it is. And so don't deviate from it. It wasn't as if somebody came up with, with, with same-sex attraction or same-sex behavior and God said, oh, I didn't think about that. No, don't do that. No, this is the design. Don't deviate from it. Why is marriage 
between a man and a woman part of God's design? We might ask that question. And I think there, there are a few reasons. I think it lies at the center is this idea of a one flesh union. God made man and woman the same. They're both human beings. There, there's much that is the same about men and women. He made us the same and yet he made us different so that we could come together in a one flesh union. Physically, two beings who are the same and yet different come together and make one. This one flesh union, it it, it pictures several things in Scripture. The one flesh union, first of all, is a picture of God's character Himself. We know that God is triune. He's one and yet He's three. There's unity and yet there's distinction. And I think that's part of why God says, let us make man in our image. And then it says, in the image of God, He made them male and female. He created them because God is showing us I'm one and yet there's distinction And it's the same with humanity. We are one. We're the same. We're all human beings. And yet there's an important distinction to us. We're male and we're female. And so this is part of God's design. A second reason is that this one flesh union between a man and a woman is the way that God designed us to fulfill this command that he gives to go out and fill the earth. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. In other words, have children, populate the earth. And the way that that is accomplished is through this one flesh union of man and woman coming together. And that is only possible in in opposite sexes coming together. A third and, and perhaps the most important in Scripture, the most clear in Scripture, the reason for these one flesh unions that can only be a reality through man and woman through the opposite sexes is that the one flesh union between a man and a woman pictures the gospel. It pictures the way in which God has saved us by making us one with Christ. We, as husbands and wives, come together. We're made as one. We we come together as one. And that's what God has done with us, not sexually, but in a spiritual way. God has united us to Jesus Christ. We've become one with Him. We're united to Him. And so we see this in Ephesians 5.31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, this mystery of this one flesh union between a man and a woman, he says, is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. God is making us one with Jesus Christ. That's what marriage pictures. And God doesn't want us to distort that picture. In understanding the purposes of, of human sexuality, uh, we, we come to understand that, that sexuality is actually only a temporary thing. It's a, it's a picture that, that has a greater fulfillment. And when we understand that this idea of the gospel being what, what sexuality points us to, I, I think that's helpful because what it teaches us is that sex isn't ultimate. It isn't the most important thing. And it is not the way in which we find our ultimate value, worth, and identity. In the Christian worldview, sexuality is something that points us beyond ourselves to something much greater and and much more important realities of God and the Gospel. Sex points us to the fact that God has made us and created us to be one with Him. And so we we find our identity and our value and worth, not in our sexuality, as, as the world wants to teach us. Well, you would deny me you, you know, the, the right to express my sexuality. I'm not going to be fulfilled in this life. You, you're telling me to restrain these desires that I have. Well, I, 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 my life will be meaningless and pointless if I don't express these desires. And sex is saying, uh, well, the way that God has designed sex is saying, no, there's something more than that. Our sexuality points us to the fact that God created us to be one with Him and to be in a relationship with Him. So even if everything is not, even if you remain single, even if you're in a marriage that, that isn't the greatest and you're not fulfilled sexually in any of those ways, even though there, there's a lack of fulfillment in those things, your life can have meaning and value and importance because you are in relationship with the Lord. Think about this. Jesus Himself, the truest human who ever lived, was single. And Jesus taught us in this same passage in Matthew 19 that singleness was a good thing if it was done for the kingdom of God. And perhaps most importantly, 
in Matthew chapter 22, we see that that sexuality and marriage is not a reality that's going to continue in heaven. It's a picture that's pointing us to a, a spiritual reality later on. But when that reality comes in heaven and we're one with Christ and we're in heaven with Him, sexuality and marriage is going to be done away with. In Matthew twenty two thirty, Jesus says this, In the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So your sexuality is not what gives you your identity. It is a temporary gift. It is a good gift from God. It is a thing to be enjoyed, but it is not what makes you who you are. It is not what gives you your identity. That comes in knowing your Creator and in knowing Jesus Christ. Sam Alberry, who is a man who struggles with same-sex attraction and is a pastor, uh, but he has, because of his commitment to Christ, he's repented of that and is seeking to live in faithfulness to Christ. He says this, one of the most common objections I get is how can you possibly tell someone that to have their life without, they can have life without sexual fulfillment. You see what happens when when we think that way is that we take a good thing, sexuality, And we make it a God thing. We make it an ultimate thing. I can't be happy unless all of my sexual urges are fulfilled. And so this is what Jesus is teaching us here. Once we see this positive design for marriage, that it's it's meant to picture the gospel, it's meant to be the union of one man and one woman coming together in a one flesh union. Once we see that now, I think then we can begin to look at some of the prohibitions listed in Scripture. We could go to Leviticus 18, verse 22, You shall not lie with male, with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And some, as I've already said, suggest... Well, this is in the Old Testament. We're, we're not under the Old Testament law. But listen, let's just be clear. The, the Bible's clear about this issue. The Bible is clear about the Old Testament because some people don't understand it. Uh, they say, well, you eat pork or you eat shellfish, so, so seafood. So if you disobey those laws, those were laws in the Old Testament. Well, what about the laws of sexuality? Can't we just do away with all of them? And what we need to understand is that certain parts of the Old Testament were not moral laws. They were rituals that were given to people. Think about baptism. This is a ritual. This isn't a moral issue. It's not moral or immoral to dunk yourself in the water. It's a command that God has given to picture something. And the food laws and wearing certain clothes and being circumcised, all of those things in the Old Testament, they were rituals. And and once the fulfillment of those rituals came in Jesus Christ, the rituals are done away with. We don't offer sacrifices anymore. We, We don't continue to observe the food laws. We don't only wear certain clothing made of certain material. Those were rituals that God gave to His people to teach them and to instruct them, to set them apart from the other nations and so on. But but in Christ, those have all been fulfilled. And it's not as if we just made this up. This is what Jesus taught. Jesus said, Jesus declared in Mark that all foods were clean. The book of Hebrews, an entire book of the New Testament was written to the fact that the Old Testament and certain aspects of it have been fulfilled. But the Bible is also explicitly clear that the moral laws given in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, the issues about sexuality, those were not just temporary rituals. Those were moral laws and they continue to be in force. It's still wrong to murder. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not lust. All of those things that that are listed in in the Old Testament, those are all still in force for us today. And the Bible is explicitly clear about that. So let's not muddle the issue, okay? If you disagree with the Bible, disagree with the Bible. But don't muddle it. The Bible in the New Testament is clear about the Old Testament law. As we come though, then we, we are not as Christians just arbitrarily deciding that we're keeping this law and we're not keeping this law. That's not the way that this has happened. And if you want to know more about that, I invite you, we'll do a Bible study. We'll look at Scripture and see what it teaches. Again, this is not something that we've just come up with. That the church, you know, in the last hundred years have decided, well, we're going to keep these laws and not that laws. No, it is the heart. Jesus himself taught these things and the apostles taught them as well. As we go through each one of these passages, what I'm wanting to do is kind of show a positive side to this. Yes, the law does, the law does content, condemn homosexual behavior. But listen, if we clearly and rightly understand the law, 
The law condemns everyone in this room. The law condemns all of humanity. The law was given and the purpose of the law was to show every single human being that we are sinners. But it is through Jesus Christ who came, Galatians 3.13 tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The law condemns homosexual behavior. The law condemns fornication. The law condemns adultery. The the law condemns all kinds of things that everyone in this room has committed. And and Jesus showed us in the New Testament in the Sermon on the Mount that it's not just actually physically carrying those actions out, but even thinking about them and delighting about them in your heart that, that brings you guilt. And that's true. But through Jesus Christ dying on the cross, He bore the curse of the law. The law says guilty. Jesus died taking our curse. So that salvation can be found for anyone, for the the homosexual, for the adulterer, for the fornicator, for the liar, for, for anyone who has broken God's law. Salvation is offered through Jesus Christ. And that's what we see in Galatians 3.13. We could look also at Romans chapter 1. And what we see in Romans chapter 1 is not that homosexuality is the only sin or that it's the worst of sins. But what we do see clearly said in Romans chapter 1 is that it is a sin. It's one among many, but it is listed as a sin. Romans 1.26 says this, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What we see if we were to read on in Romans chapter 1, that Paul doesn't just list homosexuality in that, but he goes on to say that God gave them over to other sins, such as boasting. Anyone here ever guilty of boasting? Slander? Envy? Gossip? Being haughty or prideful? Faithlessness? You see... God doesn't, or Paul in Romans 1 doesn't just list homosexuality as this one great sin that God gave them over to. Romans 1, the, the, the way that Romans 1 is, is working, much like the law, is showing us all of our guilt before God. We're all sinners. There's all kinds of sin that we have committed. But Romans goes on to show, after showing us that all humanity is sinful, all humanity is guilty before God, Romans goes on to say that in Romans 3.23 that although all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we are justified, we can be justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So whether you're homosexual, whether you've committed adultery or fornication, uh, whether you've looked at pornography or lied or, or any other number of sins, whether you just have a distrust and you're not, you don't have faith in the Lord, whether you've slandered or you've been envious, whether you've gossiped, all of them need to be atoned for and Christ has done that on the cross so that no, no sin is going to keep you from salvation. No sin is going to keep you from a relationship to the Lord. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Salvation is a gift that is offered to any and all. And so they're they're not some special class of sinners that, well, salvation isn't for them. They've gone too far. God's handed them over. No, salvation is for all people who will repent and turn to Christ. One more passage, just to make this clear that Scripture is clear about this issue. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It is clear. It is not the only sin. It is not a sin greater than other sins. It is a sin that will keep you out of the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. 
You see, our culture, our world, and even some professing Christians are trying to deceive us to say, no, this is one sin that is acceptable. This is, a, this, this is not a sin. This will not keep you out of the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived, Paul says. No one who practices these things, not just homosexuality, no one who practices any of these things, greed or drunkenness or any other, other ones, will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived this morning, Christian. But notice what he goes on to say. And such were some of you. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. He's saying nobody who does those kind of things will inherit the kingdom of God. And you were those kind of people. But what happened then, Paul? How is it that they will inherit the kingdom of God? How is it that they will be saved? He says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You see, you've been saved. You've been redeemed from these things. There were people in the Corinthian church who were drunks previously. There were people in the Corinthian church who were adulterers, who were revilers and swindlers. And there were people in the Corinthian church who at one point practiced homosexuality. And Paul says, you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. You've been saved from that. So there is hope this morning. It is a sin, and yet there's hope to, to be washed. Uh, John says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just and will cleanse us from all righteousness, unrighteousness. He'll, he'll forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can be cleansed no matter the sin, no matter what you've done. You can be cleansed. He says you've been sanctified. And this is this ongoing process in which we put to death the desires of our flesh. And, and that's what's going on for some people uh, that, that experience same-sex attraction. Coming to Jesus doesn't mean, and being saved doesn't just mean that those desires go away. They don't just end right then and there. Well, I prayed the prayer and man, I'm just, I'm just over whatever sin and desire that I had. That's not the way that it happens. For the Christian, becoming like Christ and becoming more holy is a lifelong process. And so for some people, it may be an ongoing struggle to deal with same-sex attraction, but you're being sanctified. God is working. He's changing in your life. And He says, not only were you washed, not only were you sanctified, but you've been justified. That is, you've been declared righteous. And one of the things sometimes with, with people that I've talked to who have experienced same-sex attraction is feeling, feeling unworthy and feeling sort of condemned. But if, if anyone will come to Christ, the Bible says it, and believe in Christ, they will be justified. That is to be declared righteous. So that Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No matter what you've done in the past, no matter what your past life has looked like, when you come and believe in Jesus Christ, you're declared righteous. No condemnation before the Lord. And that is the promise that is held out. We're running out of time, but I, I want to deal with some objections. I think we've seen clearly, and, and these, these passages could be multiplied that make it clear that this is a sinful behavior. Uh, let me just deal with some objections. The first is, I, I was born this way, and therefore, how can, how can it be wrong? And how can you ask me to change something that is so fundamental to who I am? But here it goes back to this idea of a worldview. And when we understand what the Bible says about us, you know, people sometimes say, well, God made me this way. And, and the reality of it is that we are all under a curse because of sin. And so everything, this world and all of us, the way that we are is not the way that God originally intended and designed us to be. God designed Adam and Eve in perfection. They sinned against God and then sin came upon all of us such that we are born, Romans 5, we're born with a sinful nature. We're born with all kinds of proclivities and inclinations towards sin and away from God. That's our natural condition. Some people struggle uh, with, with an unhealthy desire for alcohol and a strong urge for that. Some people are naturally inclined to not telling the truth. There, there are all kinds of inclinations that seem to come naturally to us, but that's a part of our sin nature. That is not what God has designed us to be. And we say, how can you ask me to deny that? To deny that would to be, be like denying who I am. This is I, I didn't ask for this. Uh, this I, I got to a certain age and I started recognizing that I was attracted to people of the same sex. But listen, for every last follower of Jesus Christ, the call for us is a call to deny things that seem natural to us. 
you know, if you say that this is just unfair that you would you would ask people who are, are same sex attracted to deny this, uh, and, and and you know other people can live as they want. Uh, that, that seems unfair. If you say that that's unfair, you don't understand the fundamental call that it means to be a Christian. It's what Jared read in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, if anyone, in other words, you want to be a Christian? Do you want to be a Christian? Do you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That, that's not easy, Right? That's not easy for a heterosexual or a homosexual. It's not easy for any of us. What is called for by Jesus Christ is a total denial of who we are to, to deny the, uh, the, the myriad of kinds of, uh, of urges and inclinations that we might have that would lead us away from faithfulness in Jesus Christ, to Jesus Christ. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. You may seem, if, if you experience same-sex attraction, it may seem to you that you are denying who you are. But Jesus said, in denying that and following Him, you will save your life. You will find a life far greater than the life that you feel that you're losing. The call to discipleship is the, the same for all of us. Deny yourself. If you think we're asking too much for, for same-sex attractive people to deny those feelings in order to follow Christ, you probably have misunderstood your own call to follow Christ and to be a Christian. And let me just say this, whatever, whatever we feel like we're sacrificing for Him, we need to be reminded that He's already given everything for us. He died for us. And whatever we feel we have lost out on in this life, He tells us will be repaid a hundredfold in this life and in the age to come, we'll inherit eternal life. So there is something much greater to be, to be gained. Let me just say this as well. I found this, and I would challenge anybody who's really wrestling with this issue or wants to know more. Sam Alberry has a, a book. Uh, he struggles with same-sex attraction. Uh, but he has a book about uh, what the Bible says and, and his own experience. And uh, it, it's, is God anti-gay? Uh, I would just challenge you to read that. It's only like 80, 90 pages. It'd be an easy read. But this is one thing that he pointed out. I, I listened to an interview with him, and, and I thought this kind of struck at the heart of this. You know, people say, you can't ask people to change their sexual orientation. And he said this, we've gotten to the point in, in culture where your gender can be entirely fluid. You can be a man today and a, a woman tomorrow. You can change your gender all day long, and nobody thinks that's, there's anything wrong with that or harmful. But if you're asked to change your sexual orientation, uh, that's, that's something altogether more difficult and something that's unhealthy and harmful. To me, doesn't that just show the inconsistency? You can change your anatomy and change your gender, and that's completely fine. But if, if a pastor or somebody says, hey, uh, you need to seek to turn away from homosexual or same-sex uh, attraction and, and, and seek to be faithful to the Lord, well, that's harmful. Don't, don't say that. So we can change our, our gender, but not our sexual orientation. That seems inconsistent to me. Let me deal with a second objection. Isn't it wrong to deny people access to loving, committed relationships? And I'm not going to spend much time here on this, except to say that the Bible is full of loving, committed relationships that are good. Jonathan and David, as we've just been going through the Old Testament in Sunday school, we, we talked about Jonathan and David. These men were cl as close as brothers. Jesus and, and his disciples. Paul and Timothy. All of these men had very close, loving relationships with people of the same sex. That's not the issue. The issue is homosexual sex. The, the issue is sexual relationships outside of God's design for marriage. We're not denying. We would never want to deny anyone access to a loving, committed relationship. And we're not denying anyone any, anything at this point except simply saying if you want to follow Christ, uh, you must be willing to give this up. A third issue, a third question. Aren't, aren't Christians hypocrites? You know, we, we talk about 
homosexuality, but what, you know, what about divorce and fornication and adultery? The church seems to be so soft on these issues, and, and yet they seem so condemning and so harsh when it comes to the issue of homosexuality. Listen, first of all, we need to just be clear. Christians, those who really understand, who are really Christians, understand and recognize our sinfulness. Okay, we're not those who are saying we've got it all together. We are saying that we're so screwed up that Jesus had to die on the cross for our sins. And that's the only way that we could be saved. We are sinful. We're we're not holding ourselves up as being self-righteous or perfect. We're we're, we're not hypocrites in in that sense. Forgiveness and salvation are held out for all people, anyone. But the issue is whether homosexuality as a lifestyle is to be celebrated or is it to be recognized as a sin. And we're saying there's, there's salvation, there's forgiveness offered for anyone and everyone, but we don't need to redefine. We, uh, you know, I struggle uh, with, with all kinds of sins. But, but the issue here is we're taking a sin and we're saying it's no longer a sin. This is something that really should be celebrated in our culture and in the church. That's the difference, right? We're redefining what sin is, and therein lies the problem. The problem as well is is that 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 accusation of us being hypocrites is far too often has been been the truth. That much of the church has been silent about a whole host of sins, so it's difficult now for us to speak out. But listen, the way forward is not just to add one more sin that we're quiet about. The way forward, the way to correct that problem is not to say, well, let's just add one more sin here that we're not going to talk about, that we're going to ignore, and that we're going to make acceptable within within the church. The way forward is, is back. The way forward is to uphold God's standards of holiness in, in every area. Not to further denigrate it. Not to further, not to further diminish what is expected of Christians. Uh, the, the way forward is to once again say, no, divorce is wrong. Adultery is wrong. Fornication is wrong. Lying and cheating and, and gossiping is wrong. And, and begin to live lives of holiness that, that are clear. That's the way forward. Let me just speak to the church as we kind of wrap this up this morning. Let me speak to the church. What is the right response well, first of all, we've seen that all people are made in the image of God. And so, so right away, we need to recognize that we are called to love all people. There is no room. There's no room for hate, for contempt, for slurs, for bullying. There's no room for that. Because all of us are sinful, number one. And, and number two, all people are made in the image of God. And that means that they have a supreme value and worth in the sight of God. So, so I grew up around certain people that, that would talk about this particular issue and people who participated in this issue in, in, in disgusting and wrong, sinful ways. We need to repent of that if we've been part of that. And we need to correct that behavior. All people are made in the image of God and deserve our value and our respect. Secondly, church, we should love our gay neighbors as we love ourselves. You know, when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, He didn't put an asterisk except for certain kinds of people. We're called to love all people as we love ourselves. And once again, I'll I'll reiterate that there is a difference, a vast difference between acceptance and approval. We can accept all people, no matter what the issue is, right where they are. But we do not give approval to their Behavior. I, I read, and here's another uh, resource if you're interested in this. It's, it's The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Rosaria Butterfield uh, was a lesbian. She was a professor at Syracuse University, the head of the women's department in, in Syracuse University, and, uh, and had a pastor who was her neighbor and began, he and his wife, to invite her into their home and to have dinner. And didn't just drop the hammer and, and rant and rave at her. But, but truly, she said, one of the things that stood out and one of the things that was key in her being converted to Jesus Christ and, and moving away from a homosexual lifestyle was the fact that they accepted her. They didn't give their approval, and that was clear, but they accepted her for who she was. And we can accept people right where they are without giving approval and consent to 
their behavior. We're called to love our neighbors, all of our neighbors, as they are. We should welcome sinners as well. There aren't a certain class of sinners that we want to keep a distance from. We should welcome all sinners to come to Jesus Christ. You know the amazing thing about Jesus Christ? We've seen that He upheld God's standards of righteousness. He didn't bend it one bit, and yet sinners love to be around Him. He ate with sinners, with tax collectors and prostitutes and other sinners. John 1.14 says that Jesus came, He was full of grace and truth. And that's what we need. That's what Christ models for us. We need to be full of grace and truth. Too often the church has been full of a lot of truth, but no grace. And we need to balance that out and hold both of those in tension. Finally, and I know I've said this for the third time now as we close, we need to recognize our own brokenness. We need to recognize our own brokenness. You remember in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus said, if, you, if your brother sins against you, go and and, and the first thing that you need to do is, is take the beam out of your own eye before you go to see, try to take the speck out of his eye. What Jesus is doing there is actually flipping upside down the way that we normally think. Well, I've got a little speck in my eye, but I need to go help him take care of his beam. For those of us who understand the gospel, we understand that we are totally undeserving. We are totally uh, apart from God's grace. We, we are sinners and we are all condemned. And when we begin to see the reality of our own sin, it doesn't make us soft on sin. It doesn't make us silent about sin. But what it does, it changes our tone. It makes us people that are a little more gracious. You know, I'm always a little leery of people in the church that can just really rant and rave against people and particular sins. And homosexuality is one of those that that is is often mentioned. I'm always a little leery of those kinds of people because I just want to say, do you understand just how sinful you are? Do you understand that Jesus had to give His life? He had to die on the cross, not just for everyone else's sins, but if you were the only person on this world Jesus would have died for your sins. That's how bad your sin is. And you see, when we first come to grips with our own sinfulness, when we first come to grips with our own brokenness, with the beam in our own eye, then we can be a little more gracious in the way that we address, in the way that we talk about, in the way that we deal with other issues. Church, no doubt our culture is heading headlong away from God's design But as we seek to speak to this, what what really concerns me is that we do so in a way that is full of love, in a way that is full of compassion, in a way that is not condemning and hateful, but in a way that, like Christ drew sinners to Himself, the church would be that same way, that sinners would feel comfortable coming to us. How foolish some of us are. We're like the unforgiving servant uh, who, when he had been forgiven so much, turned around and demanded uh, something small from someone else. We, we're that same way. We've been forgiven of all of our great wickedness and all of our great sinfulness. That ought to reflect in the way that we talk about other sins and other people. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning and we do ask for grace.